welcome, welcome to, welcome to the Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. of Israel, and of course this was a pseudomograph, uh, he didn't write it, there's the incarnation of God, right? why in this specific, just an amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek. What, another Bible Geek already? Yeah, why not? I'm Robert M. Price, the Bible geek, and um, thought I'd uh, knock some more questions out. Hopefully, we'll have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, let's see who's this one from, Lachlan. Uh, he says, uh, I don't think that mainstream acceptance of mythicism will end Christianity. The main reason is that there are things we absolutely know about the main deity of the surviving Abrahamic faiths. We know that in the Hebrew Scriptures, his name doesn't have any vowels, and we know that it's a sin to say his name in vain. We know that when you have a name like that, you might not want to say it at all, so maybe you'll say something like, Lord. In fact, you might want to take the vowel points from the word Adonai and put that into the Lord's name to make it unpronounceable. We know that some people took the four letters and transliterated Y-H-W-H and added those vowels to make the name Yahowah. And we know the people who tried to say it said it with a German accent. Yahovah. Exactly right. Still, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons insist that a mispronounced mangled version of the Tetragrammaton is God's real name. True, those two groups are cults until the BITE model, all caps B-I-T-E, huh? uh, so unlike other groups, they might be able to stop their members from thinking about it, while mainstream groups might have members say, uh, what the hell am I doing here? But even historicity doesn't help there. I talked to a woman about religion, spirituality, and Jesus over a number of years, and as a result of our mutual Socratic dialogue, she became a Reformed Jew to remove the distraction of Jesus Christ, which she saw as preventing her from having a direct relationship with God. Interesting. Right? At the end of the day, the message of Christianity either speaks to a person's heart or it doesn't. If it doesn't, no amount of historical evidence will change that. If it does, then no amount of historical evidence is needed. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. Yeah, it's uh, uh, often uh, not, uh, not really a question of evidence anyway, as uh, many of us know. Uh, I think that's well put. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, though, that this woman saw the supposed mediator between God and the human race as an obstacle. That's a good Zen-like approach uh, that uh, the religious language doesn't uh, communicate the transcendent truth. It substitutes for it. Yeah. Like it, like it. 
Uh, let's see. Huh. This is a uh, request from John Simon. Could you do a John Houston Bible epic narration voice? I doubt it. I've never tried that, and I'm not even all that sure what he sounds like. I know I've heard it, but anyway... Uh, over the years, I've watched a number of debates between Calvinists and Arminians. Arminians like to take the moral high ground by claiming that their position reflects better on the character of God. It's a little thicker than that, isn't it? I've read that John Wesley charged that Calvinism makes God out to be worse than the devil. Arminians find it impossible to consider God to be either just or loving if that God would predestine billions of souls to an eternity in hell. However, I'm not so sure of their logic. Since most Arminians are not open theists, they're likely to believe that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of all future events. My question is, how is this any less deterministic than Calvinism? If God knows uh, how all future events would come to pass, then how can human beings act contrary to God's foreknowledge? Uh, uh, true free will would require the ability to do otherwise, but if God has known since before creation that billions of souls would be damned forever, then they are just as predestined to their fate as in Calvinism. Is there any way that meticulous foreknowledge of future events and free will can be reconciled? What sayeth the geek? Yeah, I don't know if that sounded more like him, my John Houston, or uh, Nixon. Um, uh, this is a real toughie, uh, because uh, Arminians will say that to know what, like, if you know what people did in the past, that your, your post-knowledge, you might say, had nothing to do with causing what they did. Well, suppose God has a perspective outside of time altogether, and so to him it's not knowing the future. It's all present to him, uh, and he's simply watching it. Uh, that uh, does seem a little bit different. But I hasten to—I mean, that—that that I, I can kind of see. It, it implies perhaps a kind of deism that God is just an observer, like Owatu, the Watcher in Marvel Comics. But uh, it, to me, that introduces another, just as big problem. If God is outside of uh, a temporal progression, doesn't that imply that uh, God is not a living person? Uh, God does not have serial thoughts and reasonings. Uh, God does not uh, formulate goals and try to do something or effect something. And uh, it, it implies uh, non-dualist Hinduism, in my opinion, that uh, the realm of the it's all docetic. Uh, the realm of perceived experience uh, doesn't really exist. It's 
kind of a well it's, it's sort of like Kant said we don't really know whether time space cause and effect uh, in here in the universe it's just categories of perception and logical functions of judgment but as to what it is the 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 ding am sich the thing in itself well that's just an undifferentiated manifold of perception we don't know what's going on out there we don't have any certainty or even any reason to speculate on what the heck's going on in fact Kant framed the antinomies. He said, if you try to bring that into rational theorizing, that's just foredoomed to failure. Uh, Is the universe eternal or was it created in time? Either way you go, it winds up nonsense and absurdity. Um, So uh, that's a big hint that the undifferentiated manifold of perception, that is whatever it is out there that gets fed through our categories of perception it's just you know, we can't know it well i'm not the first to say that the kant and the upanishads have a lot in common uh, and so it seems to me with this kind of talk about god being outside of time you're you're really uh leaving Christianity and Judaism and getting into uh, Hindu non-dualism. So, yeah, God could just be seeing it without uh, controlling it, but uh, that's even worse, maybe. Okay, thank you, John. Um, hum, hum, hum. There's a long one. Let me scroll down and find out who sent it. Uh... I think, oh, let me see, let me see, oh boy, um, okay, I think this is from Fred from Schenectady, New York, yeah, all right, uh, back to the top, uh, greetings to the high purveyor of geekdom. Schizofuel here again. Okay, there's the name, no doubt a um, pseudonym. What the heck? Uh, here again. First, as I've written to you before, you've guessed that my name is likely a joke uh, that's evaded you. Fear not. This moniker and a couple of t shirts are all that's left of a decade spent in punk and metal bands in the 90s and aughts. I've been known as Skits for longer than I've been known by that other name. In fact, if I hear someone yell across a crowded room that other name, I usually turn and run. Anyone who knows me by that label isn't someone with whom I generally want to reminisce. On to the reason for this email. Indulge me a brief exposition. I was raised by a Vietnam veteran turned Church of Christ minister, (laughs) turned policeman, turned elected district attorney. My upbringing traveled from a land of righteous Christianity to a wilderness of conservative moralism. The result is my staunchly anchored atheism. I now live with the love of my life, who somehow turned out to be a mostly devout evangelical Christian who prods me to attend her annoying megachurch on holiday on holidays with our two beautiful young children. If I had any actual choice in my future, this would not have been it, but 
here I am. Uh, like you, I have no desire to battle with believers over the basis of their beliefs. The only moments when I come in conflict with Christians is when it affects laws of the land or their blatant disregard for the beliefs of others or myself. Luckily, this rarely happens in my home. However, I fear the contradictions bode ill for the future of raising my children. After much internal debate, I've chosen to expose my kids to subtle introductions of facts regarding the existence and beliefs of other faiths in the world. I'm stocking my bookshelves with more and more encyclopedias of world religions and the like to prepare for the coming storm. I have also discovered that my only real beef with the evangelical faith is the reliance on the threat of eternal damnation. I have for some time uh, joked with Christians that their true God isn't Yahweh or Jesus, but rather the Greek deity Phobos fear. It rarely goes over well. And so uh, we have finally come to my questions for you. If I could remove the brother's grim type fairy tale threat of hell from my children, I might be less inclined to roll my eyes at certain statements by their mother. How would you approach this? What passages in the Bible would you use to promote annihilationism instead of the evangelical alternative of an eternity of fiery torment? Uh, well, you do have the fiery torment in Matthew. Uh, Jesus says to the goats, uh, Billy Goats Gruff, I guess, uh, depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, well, the great universalist theologian, Hosea Ballou, said, uh, that's not talking about human beings. Uh, if it was prepared for the devil and his angels, his demons, then that must be who Jesus is talking to. That's very clever. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't get the... Uh, the aptness of um, that as uh, who Jesus was condemning for not having given aid and comfort to his missionaries, his brethren, uh, not giving them hospitality, visiting them in prison. <laughs> Would you expect the demons to uh, have a visitation for criminals? Uh, oh, I mean, you know, persecuted uh, prisoners, and and uh, you expect Beelzebub to to uh, see a guy in the gutter and say, "Here, let me help you up and get you a new suit of clothes." some food. Now, I wouldn't, right? I, that seems an odd thing to criticize demons uh, for, right? I mean, they're, they're dealing with other stuff. Uh, they're being condemned for uh, uh, other matters, it would seem to me, more infernal ones. But um, some would say, well, uh, you don't really know if Matthew's um, eschatology implies eternal torment. Maybe it's just like Jehovah's Witnesses say, annihilationism, uh, that uh, you're going to be burnt up, incinerated, and that's the end of you. Uh, and, uh, but I, and I used to say that, but why call the fire eternal? 
uh, if if you're just going to be done with the sinners in a split second. Uh, to me, that seems to require that it's going to be like the fate mentioned in the book of Revelation, where it says the smoke of their torment goes up day and night forever and ever, implying uh, there's no rest for the the wicked, right? Uh, So uh, it seems to me that in Matthew and Revelation, you do have uh, eternal torment, though Revelation does restrict it to those who have taken the mark of the beast, not necessarily all sinners in general. I mean, you know, it might be a case of uh, synecdoche, very similar to schenectady, um, apart for the whole, but it doesn't really say that. Uh, in fact, it says that death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Does that imply then that the rest of the wicked, uh, who we weren't even around in the time of the beast and his mark, are just incinerated? Well, maybe. It's hard to say. Um, the uh, discussion of salvation in 1 Corinthians 15 clearly implies that the righteous will be raised from the dead, but uh, nothing is said of the post-mortem fate of the wicked, implying that resurrection equals salvation. Uh, those who are not saved are not resurrected, they're just dead. Uh, and uh, so that's that's called Christian mortalism, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's, that's the end of you. Like uh, when God raises the righteous from the dead, the, they were no where until he did. You were just dead and now you're alive again. Uh, and uh, But if you're not among the righteous, you're just left in nothingness, basically. Uh, there are a couple of passages that seem to point in the direction of salvation for all, like in Colossians. It says that, uh, that uh, Christ... Uh, reconciled everything, everybody in the cosmos to God. Uh, in First uh, uh, Corinthians 15, it says um, that uh, just as in, well, I guess Romans also, uh, that uh, just as Adam's disobedience brought death to everybody in the human race, so the obedience of the one man, the latter day uh, Adam, quote unquote, Jesus Christ, has brought salvation to everybody. Uh, when you, if you start trying to qualify that, you, you're really just negating it. Well, wait a minute. I have to iron it out with that other business about uh, the, the wicked just being dead. I don't know that you do. I, I don't think you can really come up with a unified notion of uh, the afterlife, either between different biblical authors or within a single document, which may actually be a patchwork. Uh, but I guess uh, if, if w- to answer your question, I guess, I mean, this may not really be an answer to it. You might want to stress these last couple of uh, passages, Romans, 
and or First Corinthians, I sort of think both of them say something like this, uh, and uh, Colossians implying that, yeah, everybody gets in on the act. And or or another one uh, in Second Corinthians, it's uh, he says um, that uh, God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Um, uh, oh, how does he put it? Um, the, namely, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. Now that kind of sounds like, as Karl Barth interpreted it, that you're saying, okay, look, the war is over. Nobody is firing at you anymore. Why don't you put your gun down and come out of that cave? Uh, Bart used this great analogy. Uh, he's writing shortly after World War II, and uh, one back then would hear stories of how um, when uh, American troops got to this or that um, atoll or little island here and there in the Pacific, uh, some some uh, bedraggled Japanese soldier would start shooting, uh, and and they'd say, "Hey, uh, buddy, the war's over. It's been over for some years. <laughs> you, nobody's fighting you again. Forget it. Come on out. We'll all get together." And uh, Bart said, "Well, that's what this means. That the war between God and the human race is over with. Some people just don't seem to realize it. Hostilities have ceased, but they're still carrying the chip on their shoulder. the The ministry of reconciliation is to say, look, don't worry about that anymore. You." You are accepted. Now, of course, a lot of people will go to their grave not knowing that, but they'll be in for a pleasant surprise once they get to heaven. Uh, well, that might be worth uh, stressing. Um, but at any rate, you, you, as you say quite properly, you're just acquainting them with possibilities. You know, what you believe, what they teach in that church, uh, not everybody believes it. Uh, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it does mean you really have to account for your beliefs. You you really don't have any business just because that's the only thing you've ever heard. So uh, that would be my answer, whether it's helpful or not. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I see. This is... Hmm. Oh, boy. Maybe this was Fred from Schenectady. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, on a recent episode of this podcast, The Remnant, uh, published on July 5th. Uh oh, I'm sorry. On a recent episode of his podcast, The Remnant, published on July 5th, Jonah Goldberg mentioned something in passing. He mentioned the common belief that Jerusalem is one of the three holiest sites of Islam. Goldberg said, uh, understanding... Uh, Goldberg said... 
his understanding, I guess, is that Jerusalem doesn't actually appear in the Quran, and its place as one of the three holiest sites in Islam is a 19th or 20th century propaganda invention, and that uh, Muhammad's ascension from the Dome of the Rock was apocryphal. Uh, however, Goldberg said he was open to correction on the subject. The entire exchange can be heard in the first three minutes of the episode. So what's the verdict on this? Um, uh, the, it is, I don't think it's recent that uh, Jerusalem was deemed one of the holiest sites because uh, the Alasqua Mosque and the Dome of the Rock are there and have been there for quite a while. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, after Mecca and Medina, Jerusalem is one of the great holy sites of Islam. Uh, and the... Uh, ascension of of uh, Muhammad to heaven riding his horse from the rock. Uh, of course, that is apocryphal. It's, uh, neither of these things is mentioned in the Quran. That's true, but Muslims don't claim that everything comes from the Quran. Right? There are tens of thousands of hadith or traditions, uh, and one of those would be this ascension of Muhammad. Uh, uh, and it's it's part of Islamic folklore, really. Um, but uh, so he's certainly right about that. Now, also mentioned in the exchange, does the Quran promise to martyrs, those who die in jihads, 72 virgins or 72 raisins? Uh, do you also have a ruling on this? Uh, yeah, that, uh, it, it, what, uh, this is a real weird one, but uh, the issue is whether the Arabic word implies white eyes, not bloodshot, uh, and therefore uh, a figure of speech for perfect, um, permanently virginal um, uh, celestial, I guess, uh, women uh, up in heaven awaiting the righteous. What uh, I've often wondered, what do they think about... Uh, Islamic women, are they going to have a bunch of, uh, what do they call them, the, uh, oh, good God, those, uh, I can't think of it, the guys with uh, no shirts, a lot of muscles and the bow ties, I can't think of it, but uh, they, they're going to have that to look forward to, and nobody says anything about that in Islam. Are women just not going to heaven? Uh, I, I don't know. I'd love to hear an answer to that one. But uh, so this heavenly harem idea is based on taking the white reference to mean white eyes and thus perfectly healthy and fetching females. But uh, there's no reason to interpret it that way. It's been shown by various uh, Arabic scholars that the word properly refers to white grapes or raisins made from them. Uh, and so, yeah, it looks like you've just got uh, some fruit waiting for you. And uh, I mean, there, that's pretty funny. You can see where it came from, but... Uh that's uh, it's sort of similar, though though more absurd, to the um, notion that uh, that the Ebionites had that when it says that John the Baptist living in the wilderness 
survived on wild honey and locusts. And uh, the Ebionites were strict vegetarians, and they didn't want they didn't want to think of John the Baptist as eating bugs. And uh, so they said, well, you know, carob pods are sometimes called locusts. So maybe that's what what it meant. Actually, that's not a mistake. That could well be the the implication but it's funny that uh, and but on the other hand we know that the dead sea scrolls community had recipes for uh roasting locusts to eat so uh, who knows what they mean but it's it's funny how the, these differences of uh, possible definition can uh, change your doctrine hmm okay uh let's see um uh, let's see, let's see. This is, okay, this is from Stephen. And uh, he says, I enjoyed reading your Holy Fable series very much. Still on sale at Amazon, uh, especially Volume 1, which taught me so many new ideas. I heard recently you were planning Volume 4. Will this include the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, the Nag Hammadi texts? Well, no, but some of that stuff appears in my um, book, The Pre-Nicene New Testament. Uh, Holy Fable number four is going to have um, uh, a commentary on uh, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the uh, the Book of Mormon. Well, there's just a bunch of essays on selected passages. The Libretto of Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, Lovecraft's Necronomicon, and what else? Uh, ooh, I forget. There are five items in it. Uh, the Necronomicon, Superstar, Book of Mormon, Aquarian Gospel, and Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, okay. Uh, and uh, should be a lot of fun if we can get around to it. You know, one of my... Uh, sad songs that I uh, sing is that uh, on Patreon, I'm really trying to hike up the bucks so that my brilliant and beautiful and talented wife, Carol, uh, can uh, have the time to devote to our various publication projects and so on. And uh, so she could quit what she's doing as a teaching assistant and do that uh, but as long as she is doing that uh, things are a little slow okay um i was recently reading about tatian's gospel harmony called the diatessaron which means through through or from the four uh, if none of the four gospels had survived but only tatian's gospel harmony would academics have been able to discover that there were at least four gospels and the document behind it or not. The reason I'm asking is that I was recently reading an article by Professor Joseph uh, Whitstum, uh, W-I-T-Z-T-U-M, on what he calls the Quran's synoptic problem. Uh, Whitstum notes there's plenty of repetition in the Quran and wonders if it was originally several sources. 
I know there's John Wansborough's theory that the Quran was originally a collection of logia sayings, but putting aside that theory, what methods can you use to find out if the Quran was originally several different sources? I guess this is the same challenge faced by academics of the Old Testament who later found it was made of several sources like J and E and D and P. The problem with the Quran is there's no chronology and no narrative. It is very elusive and opaque so that even early Islamic commentators didn't know the context or Zitzim Laban of various verses. So what methods would you use to try and dissect the Quran? Uh, well, let me pause there. I think you could carve up the diatessaron into the gospel sources, it might not be as definitive as the JEDP theory, um, but you do have doublets and so on. Uh, like Matthew will have two versions of the sign of Jonah passage, two versions of the take up your cross passage and so on. Uh, that's the same sort of doublet um, phenomena you find in the Pentateuch, where it sure looks like you got two different versions or the, uh, uh, well, you had two different versions from different sources and you didn't want to leave anything out. Uh, but then again, it's hard to know where to stop on this because you got two versions of the feeding of the multitude within Mark. Does that mean he had different sources? It's not completely in, in, uh, infallible, but in the Pentateuch, it is pretty definitive because you've got clusterings of characteristics, what name is used for God, whether the style is somewhat poetic, uh, whether it is full of statistics and uh, uh prolixity uh, and and uh, uses common phrases again and again behold i make my covenant with you etc it comes up a lot in p uh, whether there's a geographical frame of reference and uh, and you can these things cluster together so um so uh predominantly obtrusively in the Pentateuch that it's not that tough to, to separate the sources. Uh, I'm not sure if you have pronounced stylistic differences that, that would be sufficient. I mean, the fact that we call the first three Gospels the synoptic Gospels mean that they, they look very much alike. Uh, they seem to have the same sort of basic viewpoint, though you, you would certainly have to... Uh, separate the two nativity stories and uh, into different documents, the two genealogies and so on. Uh, and uh, you would know there are the differences there. You, you certainly could isolate almost the whole of the Gospel of John, which is very different from the synoptics in just the way the Pentateuchal sources fall out. Um, whether to the degree to which you could distinguish Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I still think you could do it because, uh, you, one clue to that is that we can tell often whether a particular passage in the Gospels was composed by Luke or Matthew, either one, uh, by a, a familiar pattern, a recurring pattern of of uh, wording, of favorite vocabulary and themes. It would be tougher, I think, but I believe you could do it.
Uh, now, with the Quran, I tend to think of the Quran as exactly analogous to the Hadith. Uh, that I mean, look at what they, the official story even says, that uh, the Quran was compiled by uh, the Caliph Uthman, I believe, uh, and though there are different stories as to which Caliph uh, had it compiled, but what they what they did was to go around collecting source material, almost like the Brothers Grimm, or like J and E in the Old Testament, and people said, oh, well, yeah, I remember what the prophet said on this occasion. In fact, it got it written down here on on uh, palm leaves or on the, the shoulder blades of sheep. Uh, there are a couple of media that they mentioned, and uh, so forth, and so they, they compiled all this. Now, that seems highly unlikely to me, uh, if you're saying, yeah, they actually transcribed what Muhammad said, uh, and uh, you couldn't have gotten the whole Quran that way. But uh, the element of truth I see in it is that they got a bunch of traditions about what Muhammad had said because people found it useful to authenticate their view about Allah or about uh, the different pious practices by saying, well, you know, this isn't just my idea. Uh, the prophet Muhammad said it. Now, we, we know pretty darn well that that's what happened with the Hadith. Uh, and, uh, and I think the Quran is just an earlier collection of Hadith. And, uh, and so uh, I think you, maybe this guy's approach is the correct one. Now, there's another way uh, that uh, textual archaeology, uh, uh, Bruce Chilton, a great uh, scholar of the New Testament, said that a text is not a tell, uh, like an archaeological mound that you're excavating. I'm not sure that's true, because I think the Quran is a good example, if you look at the work of Gunter Luling, uh, where you can clear away the, uh, the, the overgrowth and get back to a rather different original because um, Luling showed in a book called the Ur-Quran uh, that um, a bunch of Quranic surahs, which are, are very grammatically confusing. I mean, uh, it, it, that's why tr translations of the Quran differ so much, because it's hard to know what the heck it's saying. Uh, and somebody has gummed it up somehow, and, and often the apparent motive was to bring the text in line with later Islamic orthodoxy. And, uh, and Luling found that if, that there's a way to remove a lot of that imposed theological static. And when you do, you find that uh, as much as a third of the Quran was really a Christian hymn book. Uh, and, and that's been rewritten, redacted heavily to uh, make it sound more Islamic. Uh, that's another approach to source criticism of the Quran. Uh, you mentioned this thing about the Zitzim Laban. A whole lot of the um, ostensible biography of Muhammad uh, that was written down about a century after he supposedly lived, 
uh, is, which is written by a guy named uh, Ibn Ishaq, uh, often mispronounced Ibn Ishaq, but that's not right. It's Ibn Ishaq. Uh, he, uh, this stories of what Muhammad did and who he was related to and this and that and the other thing, a lot of it is based on guesswork as to what the heck the, the surahs were about and what led them to... Uh, to uh, be put down in the first place. This is just what Bultmann said about many of the the stories in the Gospels, the pronouncement stories. You got a a statement like it's the sick who need the physician, not the healthy. What what would have led Jesus to say that? And so you come up with a tax collectors and sinners thing. Um, Or think of the one, uh, don't throw your pearls before swine or holy things before dogs, uh, lest they uh, trample them underfoot, turn on you and tear you to pieces. What the heck's he talking about? There isn't any story leading up to that one. Once I did an exercise for a New Testament class where I came up with like seven different possible stories that would have led to that as a punchline. Yeah, who knows? But Bultmann said that uh, most of the pronouncement stories would have been attempts to explain the story. What was the joke that it was the punchline to? Well, that's the same thing as uh, happened in the Quran, only it's not inserted into the text. Uh, you find it in commentaries, and then again, it's settling into a new home in Ibn Ishaq's uh, Book of the Life of Muhammad. Here's a very famous example that got Salman Rushdie into big trouble, the satanic verses. Uh, there is a passage where uh, it, it says in the Quran that, uh, that Allah is able to abrogate the interjections of Satan and replace them with uh, his own uh, revelation. What is that talking about? What on earth could that be referring to? Well, uh, you get a story not spelled out in the Quran, but a commentator says, okay, how about this? The prophet is negotiating with the Quraysh elders of Mecca. Uh, He had them under siege and said, look, I won't annihilate you if you will agree to accept Islam and therefore monotheism, that Allah is the only God. Well, they uh, worshipped Allah too, but they had various other subordinate gods, especially these three um, uh, daughters of Allah, Al-Lat, Al-Manat, and Al-Uzah, who were all kind of interchangeable moon goddesses and goddesses of fate and so on. It's sort of like having Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite. Uh, And uh, they said, how about this? We consider them daughters of Allah who can pass your prayers on to to him. And uh, Muhammad said, well, all right, that's a pretty good compromise. We'll go with that. And then that night, the angel Gabriel said to him, are you out of your mind? Uh, Allah begetteth not and is not begotten. Now, that phrase does appear in the Quran a couple of times. And Muhammad said, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? I guess Satan whispered that to me, and I uh, mistook it for a revelation from Allah. (laughs) Oops. Uh, 
The Quran doesn't say that. It's just a, an interesting story attempting to explain this weird passage. So uh, I think that um, Quranic critical studies are... I don't want to say in their infancy, but it's a relatively new thing. If you want to look into this, and you should, uh, take a look at um, um, a collection of newly translated critical essays edited by uh, Ibn Warraq, W-A-R-R-A-Q. I believe Prometheus published this, The Quest for the Historical Muhammad, and some other books that he's done, too, that uh, go into all this stuff. It is very, very fascinating. Okay, back to the question. By the way, why were four Gospels included in the New Testament? I find Irenaeus's argument... Um, the Gospels could not possibly be either more or less in number than they are, since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds. I find that unconvincing. He does say that. Uh, was it so? Uh, was it so? Was it so? So different Gospels. Was it so? Uh, Different was it so different gospels would refute a different heresy, like John being used to refute Gnosticism, or was it to co-opt different types of Christianity, like including Luke to co-opt Marcionism? Um, boy, uh, the the uh, numerological criteria used by unknown clerics to uh, organize the New Testament is one of the most dubious of the criteria, though none of them really are, are compelling by modern standards. But sevens were important, and they wanted sevens or multiples of sevens for letter collections. So there are seven so-called Catholic epistles, seven introductory letters to the book of Revelation, uh, and if you counted Hebrews, 14 Pauline epistles, uh, of course, Hebrews doesn't say it's by Paul, but if you said it was, uh, okay, you'd have two sevens in there. That carried some weight. Well, they weren't willing to have seven Gospels in there, and I'm not sure what they found wrong with some of them, but some were excluded because they were popular among heresies, whether they taught them or not. Like, I think the fact that Valentinians and Manichaeans, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, got it uh, ignored. And uh, the Gospel of Truth, which is really a treatise, not a narrative. That's Valentinian, so that, that ain't going in. The Gospel of Philip is overtly Valentinian. Forget it. The Gospel according to the Hebrews was apparently a version of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and it wasn't deemed heretical. People were reading it uh, for uh, many hundreds of years, but it's been lost. Uh, but um, the, uh, the theory about why these Gospels were well they they had been and here's where I'm getting a little closer to what you're saying they had been sanitized, it appears, to uh be more compatible with emerging Catholicism. And uh it it wasn't exactly 
so they could refute particular heresies, but rather they had to, they had heresy in them, in their original versions, and had to be doctored up. Uh, now, uh, what do we mean by that? Well, the Gospel of John seems, even in its present form, to be a kind of Gnostic text. Uh, and, um, uh, it, it looks to me like that uh, someone has uh, inserted anti-Gnostic, anti-Docetic materials in there side by side with more Gnostic-leaning stuff. I think the same things happen in 1 Corinthians, for instance. Uh, they didn't dare to cut out the stuff they didn't like. They would just... Uh, corrected, quote-unquote, by putting another viewpoint in cheek by jowl. My favorite example, though it's not Gnosticism in this case, uh, is uh, Patrapassianism, where Jesus says in chapter 14 of John, well, you know, Philip says, uh, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, uh, Philip, have I been with you all this time and you still don't recognize me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. <laughs> oh, that's Patrapassianism. Jesus isn't just God incarnate. He is God the Father incarnate. <laughs> oh, uh, that... Uh, that smacks of so-called dynamic monarchianism or Sabellianism or Patrapassianism or modalism, whatever you want to call it. Somebody didn't like that. And so they immediately have Jesus backpedal and say, or don't you believe that the Father is in me and I am in him, whatever that means. Right, it it doesn't really mean anything that I can tell. It's just a way of saying, no, "Don't get the wrong idea." I'm not saying I'm the father, but of course he was. And so you've got uh, different views debating uh, because of different scribes having their own copies of, of the Gospel of John. Uh, you got Marcionism in the Gospel of John, like uh, no one has ever seen God, but. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ has made him. Isaiah? Moses? Uh, Nadab and Abihu? These guys never saw God? Well, the hell with the Old Testament, right? Uh, yeah, I know it says they did, but <laughs> that wasn't the case. They were seeing the Demiurge or something. That can't be just a slip, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you're uh, that's Marcionism and so on. So it's been uh, sanitized. There were early Christians who didn't want the Gospel of John to be in the New Testament. They said it wasn't written by any apostle. It was written by the Gnostics. Serenthus. Maybe it was. Uh, okay, uh, what about Luke? Well, uh, Luke appears to be a padded out version of a shorter gospel that survives in its uh, more close to its original form as the Marcionite gospel, which uh, we don't have, but we can pretty much reconstruct from notes by Tertullian and Justin Martyr and others and say, hey, you notice this passage isn't in the Marcionite's gospel? They must have cut it out, whereas no doubt the reverse was true, that the Catholics uh, padded it out and added that stuff. Um, and uh, that had to, there's still signs of that, right, where uh, 
Jesus says uh, the thing about the wine and the wine skins. If the, you don't uh, put new wine into old wine skins because they're already stretched to the breaking point because they've already contained fermenting, expanding wine. If you put new wine in there, they're going to burst the skins. The wine will be poured out, and you've ruined both of them. No, no, you need new skins for new wine. Uh, and okay, that's that's in uh, Mark and Matthew too, but in Luke. You've got uh, Jesus suddenly stop on a dime and reverse and said, nonetheless, uh, whoever has tasted old wine doesn't bother with the new stuff. He says, the old is better. What? This is an attempt by a Catholic scribe to fend off the obvious Marcionite uh, tendency of of that stuff. But again, there's stuff that uh, they didn't get rid of. They didn't notice where Jesus says, uh, no one knows the the Father except for the Son and any to whom the Son deigns to reveal him. Nobody knows God? Well, uh, according to the Marcionites, the father of Jesus wasn't the God they knew, and so on. Well, uh, Luke has been uh, expanded in this way, and Acts uh, has been added to counter Marcionites. It's, ex- I mean, o- almost overtly anti Marcionite. Uh, how's about Matthew? Well, um, I think you can, well, any way you cut it, uh, there have been at least two stages of expansion and redaction of Mark to give us our present Matthew. And uh, in the maybe the latest one, you have this interesting statement in Jesus' keynote speech on the, the, Mount, on the, the Sermon on the Mount there. He says, uh, don't go thinking I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Uh, and uh, heaven and earth, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot or tittle of the law to pass away. Now that sentence is in Q. You've got that in Luke as well. Uh, and therefore, Matthew adds on, uh, whoever keeps the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, he'll be called the greatest in the kingdom of God. But if anyone uh, breaks or relaxes, I've read uh, the uh, the least of these commandments, he's going to be uh, the least in the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? Well, he's addressing a rival Christian view, right? He says, uh, don't think I have come to abolish the law. That's l- theological language. Like when they say the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, I came uh, not to uh, destroy men li- men's lives, but to save them. I came to do this. Th- these are different retrospective Christological statements by Christians. Here, here's the point of, of Jesus coming. This is what he was all about, what he was trying to do. And so Matthew is saying, yeah, there are Christians that say Jesus' mission was to abolish the law and the prophets, but that's wrong. And if anybody on the basis of that says, look, you don't need to bother with the Torah, um, the, well, they're all right, they're some kind of Christian, but they're going to be pretty chagrined when they wind up in heaven and uh, instead of a crown with jewels, they got a paper hat. Um, 
that's often taken to be a reference to Paul, and it sort of is, but Paul and Marcion are pretty much the same thing. Marcion was the great advocate of Paulinism, and you notice it doesn't just say the commandments of the law. It does say that, but that's not all. It says the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus says there's some people who say, I, of course, it's not Jesus, it's Matthew. Some say Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets, namely the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, that's Marcion. Uh, and so these, these things had to be adjusted to make them sound orthodox. Then the most controversial example would be Mark. Uh, was there a longer version of Mark available only to Gnostic initiates. Morton Smith claimed he had found a quote from this uh, in a letter written by Clement of Alexandria in the second century. This, of course, is the famous secret gospel of Mark. Uh, and uh, then, of course, it would have, it would have been cut out. Ah, uh, boy. And... Uh, I think that it probably was a hoax mounted by Morton Smith, but uh, there are certainly credible New Testament scholars that think, no, it was, it's a real ancient document. I mean, who knows who wrote it, but maybe this has a claim to have been part of Mark originally. And uh, Stephen Huller makes the, the fascinating and plausible suggestion that uh, the secret gospel of Mark may have been the so the same thing as the so-called gospel according to the Egyptians, which Clement also uh, quotes, and uh, and and that gospel in turn uh, was often said to have been written by the Gnostic Basilides. Well, if you put A, B, and C together, <clears throat> you get the interesting possibility that Basilides was the uh, actual author of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and that, uh, and again, it had to be um, sanitized, uh, in, in this case, not added to, but, but uh, subtracted from. And I, this is quite plausible to me, but who knows? The evidence is a little dubious. But yeah, the, the four had to be reconciled with emerging Catholic doctrine, uh, though they missed some things that uh, kind of tell you what uh, what was going on. Lessing made an interesting, Gotthold Lessing made an interesting um, comment that bears on what you're saying that was each gospel attuned to counteract a different heresy. Lessing said maybe it's just the opposite. He says, we read that the Ebionites, the law-keeping Jewish Christians, only used Matthew of the four gospels. And I uh, said, is, uh, is that maybe because Matthew teaches the Ebionite doctrine. If you look close, is it a coincidence that they use this one and only this one? And then he said, uh, maybe he said the same thing about John and Gnosticism. But he said, if you look close, maybe you find that each gospel represents a different heresy. And uh, I would say, well, at least in its original form. So uh, who, who knoweth? Uh, it's tough to say. Hmm, let me 
get uh, uh, let's see this is a uh, Todd from Salt Lake City uh, he says uh, he's got three questions here I've been wondering about the apparent biblical condemnation of usury uh, in my youth it was defined for me as charging excessive interest now I'm not so sure, and I'm wondering if the Old Testament originally condemned the charging of any interest. I look forward to any light you may be able to shed on the subject. Um, I uh, I think it, it's like a hedge around the Torah that they didn't charge interest because they figured either that is uh, exploiting the borrower or that... Uh, if you allowed it even on fair terms, it would inevitably start getting abused. You know, the hedge around the Torah, well, you know, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Uh, how would one do that? What would count as uh, as in vain, you know, like in uh, the life of Brian? But all I said was, this halibut is good enough for Jehovah. And they stone him. Um, I think it meant perjury. Uh, you know, they would put you on oath saying, uh, now, uh, give glory to Yahweh. Uh, did you do so and so? And then you would reply, as Yahweh lives, I didn't. Uh, well, suppose you perjure yourself and you're swearing by Almighty God. Ahem. That uh, could be dangerous. Uh, or you uh, say uh, you're doing construction work for somebody and you say, okay, uh, as uh, Yahweh lives, I will have the job done by so-and-so date at so-and-so cost. But you don't do it, uh, right? You stop showing up to the work site or, or whatever. Uh, you've invoked the name of Yahweh as an oath and you broke it and not a good idea. I think that's probably what's intended, but nobody really knew after a while. So they said, look, uh, better safe than sorry. Let's just stop using the name, period, and we'll be safe. What, what say we use this uh, other title, Adonai. Yeah, what the heck, that's what we'll do, which is why we have Lord instead of uh, Yahweh in many Bible, quote, translations, unquote. Uh, second question, I'm also wondering about familiar spirits. And after trying to imagine what a familiar spirit would look like to an ancient Israelite, I can't help but wonder if they simply meant people who had domesticated pets. What saith the geek? Uh, well, familiar spirits were uh, believed to be demons invoked by a sorcerer to give him information or enable him to do magic tricks, usually harmful ones. And they believed that the jinn, the desert spirits, uh, could uh, tell you uh, where you left your chariot keys or uh, th their mediums mentioned in in the Old Testament you would go to to 
have them conjure up uh, a dead person, an ancestor, whatever, like the witch of Endor, right? Where Saul says, I got to find out how the battle tomorrow's going. Uh, and so he seeks out the, the spirit medium and she summons the ghost of Samuel uh, and uh, so forth. Well, familiar spirits are a similar idea. Uh, well, also, uh, speaking of Samuel, why do Saul and his buddy go to Samuel to get help finding these uh, donkeys that have wandered off and got lost? Well, because he was uh, a, a shaman, basically, who would go into a trance and hear the buzzing of insects. Uh, it would sound like that, but it was the chittering of the desert spirits. Oh, yeah, we saw them over there. Uh, and, and so on. So it was uh, now in, in medieval magic, a familiar spirit often took the form of a cat or, or some such thing. I got four cats here. I wouldn't count them out as possibly uh, familiar spirits. Right, Harley? Uh, let's see. Uh, so um, it's, I don't know what they would look like unless they did take such a form. I'm not sure if the Bible has visible familiar spirits anywhere in it, though. Uh, finally, would you be willing to comment generally on Exodus 23.20? Uh, let's see, uh, let me uh, grab my Bible, 2320. Uh, let's see, well, let's back up a little bit. Uh, oh, uh, they're talking about Jerusalem uh, having turned to idolatry and uh yeah, it's kind of fun, the whole thing, 23. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. Uh, there their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. <laughs> uh, Ohola was the name of the elder and... Oholibah, the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohola is Samaria, and Oholibah is Jerusalem. That's Israel and Judah. Ohola played the harlot while she was mine, and she doted on her lovers the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Uh, she bestowed her harlotries upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of every one on whom she doted. She did not give up her harlotry, which she had practiced since her days in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians upon whom she doted. These uncovered her nakedness. They seized her sons and her daughters, and, they, and her they slew with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed upon her. Her sister Oholibah saw 
this, yet she was more corrupt than she in her doting and in her harlotry, which was worse than that of her sister. She doted upon the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way, but she carried her harlotry further. She saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, girded with belts on their loins, with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like officers, a picture of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. When she saw them, she doted upon them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their lust. And after she was polluted by them, she turned from them in disgust. When she carried on her harlotry so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned them from her sister." Yet she increased her harlotry, remembering the days of her uh, of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt and doted upon her paramours there, whose members were like, <laughs> oh, brother, whose members were like those of asses and whose issue was like that of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. Therefore, O Holibah, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will rouse against you your lovers from whom you turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side. The Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them, officers and warriors, all of them riding on horses, and they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet, and I will commit the judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. And I will... What does that mean? Well, they might get a little nastier than God would. Um, And I will direct my indignation against you, uh, that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears and your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your fine jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to the Egyptians or remember them any more. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred and take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you naked, uh, bare, and the nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, Well, uh, what does this have to do with... I think that they're referring to the uh, religious syncretism, the addition of uh, Egyptian... Assyrian and Babylonian uh, gods and rituals. Um, in, in Egypt, this was because they lived among Egyptians, right? Though I don't think we pick that. Well, I guess that might be intimated in uh, Exodus, even when Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? 
Uh, and he says, well, tell him I am has sent you the God of your fathers. That kind of implies a gross religious ignorance, right, of, of the uh, Israelites in Egypt. So, yeah, maybe that's in, intimated there. Uh, but it also seems, I think, to refer to entangling alliances, as George Washington put it. We read in Isaiah warnings not for Israel and Judah not to seek alliances with these heathen nations. Uh, don't seek an alliance with Egypt in order to fight Assyria, uh, and and so on. That because if you do, and if you negotiate terms and become tributary states of these huge empires to the north. As part of the tribute, they're going to require you to bring images of their gods into the temple, and you're going to have to worship the hosts of heaven and this and that and the other thing, the chariot of the sun god and, and this and that. Uh, and you did. Uh, and uh, this is why uh, you, you're, you're reneging on your covenant with God. Uh, you were, so to speak, married to him when he made the covenant with you. And look what you're doing. Look at this carrying on. Uh, God is not going to stomach this. Uh, you're going to get what's coming to you. You thought you'd take refuge in the arms, so to speak, of uh, of these lovers, your allies and so on, your ecumenical partners in dialogue, but there's going to be hell to pay now. And I think that's what's going on. And since God is sort of the bride, uh, I'm sorry, Israel is sort of the bride of God, when they uh, start uh, fraternizing with other nations and their religions, it's harlotry and adultery and so on. Uh, so I think that's what's going on there. And they, uh, like the Puritans, one might add, had a robust view of sexuality. These guys weren't um, all uh, prissy blue noses. Uh, so this kind of imagery, well, what the heck, why not? I mean... <laughs> I'd love to hear some of that read from the pulpit, but I don't think you ever will. Uh, so, okay, Todd, thanks. Uh, I guess that's it for today. Uh, who knows, tomorrow, maybe yet another Bible geek, if I'm in the mood. So, thanks for being with me on this one. Uh, check out uh, all three volumes of Holy Fable and uh, my Bart Ehrman interpreted book and other fun stuff on Amazon, and uh, uh, consider becoming a Patreon supporter, because there I do <clears throat> the human Bible, and uh, some people like that better than this. Okay, well, I'll see you soon again, or you'll hear me soon on the old Bible Geek.